It's that time of week, the time you've been waiting for. It's time for Goat Gab, a weekly podcast about all things in the dairy goat industry. Sit back and enjoy an hour or so with your hosts, Laura Warren Hughes and Cameron Jedlowski, as we talk about ideas and topics that matter to the dairy goat world. Hello, Goat Gabbers, and welcome to another exciting episode of our weekly podcast, Goat Gab. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Laura Warren Hughes, and I am joined by my other co-host, Cameron. Yes, and this week we are joined by a very special guest coming all the way from lovely, sunny, hopefully sunny California, Dr. Fauna Smith from UC Davis. Dr. Fauna, how are you? Dr. Fauna Smith, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Um, it's uh, exciting to get to talk to you. Yes, we are very excited as well. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and some of your um, exciting things you get to do with your job and, and your activities in the dairy goat world? Sure. Um, so I, um, I am a longtime goat breeder, um, and I grew up uh, breeding goats. My mom started Wingwood Farm Nubians in the 1970s. Um, the Wingwood Farm Nubians predate both my sister and I. Um, and so uh, from a, a producer perspective, I'm actually, you know, a goat owner myself and have my own herd of goats. Um, my professional career has been in veterinary medicine. Um, and I graduated from UC Davis with a veterinary degree in 2005. Um, I practiced for about 10 years um, in New Zealand, um, which, when it comes to the topic we're talking about today, um, provides me some interesting perspective because um, kind of where we are headed here is where New Zealand has always been. Um, And so um, I have a lot of experience um, in dealing with, um, you know, uh, antimicrobials being uh, prescription only. Um, and then I am currently an uh, assistant professor of livestock um, reproduction and herd health um, in the Department of Population Health and Reproduction at UC Davis. Um, so my job is 50% clinical, meaning I am out on farms um, seeing patients, which in this case are mostly herd clients, um, and I do all um, livestock species. And then the other 50% of my time is teaching and doing research. And um, my research interests are in um, small ruminant, um, infectious disease, and immunology. That's a lot. That is a a lot. How do you even find time to um, come up for water? I don't (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, my colleagues this morning were commenting that I was sending them an email at four o'clock in the morning and they're like, do you always get up at four o'clock in the morning? And I'm like, yes, when there's things to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's when it's quiet and you can get stuff done without people bothering you, right? Yeah. And the internet is faster at four o'clock in the morning. True. <laughs> <laughs> through. Before we dive into our topic here, Laura, what's happening at your place this week? Um, the, the big news at my house is we, we got our website up and I think it's been like two years out of date. So that's really miserable. I know Cameron, that you are always good about your website fauna. I don't know how great you are about keeping yours up, but it's always one of those things that's on a list to get done and then it doesn't. So, um, I was happy to, happy to get that up. Um, Thank goodness for daughters who can teach you things. You know, I, I used to web design websites back when the internet was new and it's kind of a whole different ball game now because I learned the hard way. If you don't optimize your website for people to view it on your phone, you get lots of um, emails and messages saying it's all screwed up. And I'm like, it looks fine on my end. Well, I didn't look at it on the phone. So um I got that done and put up some barn cameras this week. So um, my daughter in college is elated that she can look out any time of the day and see what the goats are doing outside. So I hope she's not doing that in class when she should be listening to class. But the goat cam is a great source of entertainment, I think. So 
That's it. Well, if she, if she had professors like Dr. Fauna, I'm sure she would want to listen, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, Fauna, you've been busy recently with your laundry list of things you do in your professional world, but in the goat world, you've been busy with a big move, right? Yeah, so we just moved. Um, so Wingwood Farm obviously started by mom, but um, over the last few years, uh, the bulk of the herd has come to live with me and my yeah, husband and my son. And, um, like and so we yeah, have, yeah. over the last few weeks, wow. moved more animals than I care to tell you how many. Um, to a new place, which is very exciting. We just bought 10 acres and it's got, you know, pastures already and barns and, um, the bucks needed to have some barns built, but the does and the, and the rising yearlings, they all had, you know, facilities that were already on the place. So that was great. But, um, it's amazing how much stuff you accumulate when you have goats and then when you have to move them, you have to move all the stuff that goes with them too. Oh, yes. that sounds wonderful, though. <laughs> it is. It's it's very exciting. Um, I I do have a, a long time coming. I do have a question for you. I saw on the Facebook that you had individual buck sheds. Um, what's and I know another renowned goat breeder out in your area has individual buck sheds as well. What's the thought behind that? Um, and why do y'all do it like that out there? Um, so, for, so we have over the years, um, we have not had a large area in which to house our bucks. Um, and, um, we have, we always keep young bucks together. So like when, before they're a year of age, um, they like their first breeding year, we usually have them in groups of two to three. Um, and then sometimes we'll even keep them together up through their second breeding season. Um, but I can tell you that we have actually had some pretty severe fighting injuries from keeping older large bucks together, particularly if the space, uh, if it's not spacious enough for them. Um, and so it's kind of just been our modus operandi to keep anything over two years of age in their own stall, but still have them so that they can see each other and, um, and, uh, you know, they still have some sort of social interaction. Um, and in the off season, um, we've even on occasion put like bucks. We don't, we do, our does do not cycle year round here. Um, we've had older bucks that we've put in with the does to live with the does, but not in with other bucks because of fighting injuries. Very interesting. Yeah, that I did not know. I learned something today. That's that's quite fascinating. There, <laughs> Anna. In in addition to your big move that you've had, you also did something else that I think is very a big deal this summer, right? You know. added you added some new letters to your name. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Just yeah. that. I finished my PhD in May um, and submitted my dissertation. And yeah, so um, that was, uh, uh, I actually was working on um, a mouse model looking at um, natural antibodies um, and protection from disease um, by natural, natural antibodies. That is so cool and so relevant to what we're talking about today, I think. Yeah. Um, jumping in at my place here, it's been quiet, except I came back from ultrasounding goats at my dad's house um, to two goats in heat that one shouldn't have. Well, they both shouldn't have been in heat, but nonetheless, they are getting serviced and we are still breeding goats and I am still going crazy. Um, but other than that, um, got a load of hay and just had a really nice, quaint Thanksgiving. Let's just say that. Ultrasounded goats here, ultrasounded goats at my dad's house, ultrasounded goats at Catherine's parents' house. So it was just an ultrasound weekend. That sounds like fun. I am um, currently preparing for Karen Lewis to come to my place this weekend. And um, there are 32 bucks, of which only eight are mine. 
um, that will be coming to my place to get collected and frozen their semen this weekend. So on top of moving, we decided to throw that in. <laughs> well, that that sounds like a fun time. I would love 30, 32 bucks at a collection. Sounds a little crazy, but uh, we all know how great of a job Karen does putting up those straws. So if people wanted to find your place this weekend, they could just follow their nose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll be, uh, it'll be my neighbor, my new neighbors didn't know what they were getting. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That'll be fine. <laughs> uh, Laura, what's going on in Edgar world? Um, you know, one thing that I think everybody should just be mindful of, this is the time of year to go ahead and get your membership renewed. And if you can get it done now, you save some money and, um, you know, this is the thing to do. And Hey, a membership to ADGA could be a really good uh, Christmas present for people in your life too. If you've got some friends that maybe haven't taken the plunge yet to become ADGA members, go ahead and get them signed up. That, that'd be a great gift. And speaking of gifts, um, if you haven't been on the Facebook, ADGA is very pleased to be offering a standardized measuring stick for Nigerian dwarves. So if you are a Nigerian um, breeder or um, a show chairman and maybe would like to have one for your show or just would like to know yourself how tall your animals are, um, this is the great stick to do that with. So makes a great Christmas present and you just uh, order it from Adga and they'll get it to you. Excellent there. Uh, Fauna, are you ready to talk about what we've been alluding to this whole time and kind of this mystique as well here and our main topic of talking about antimicrobial stewardship and some big changes that are happening in July, 2023 for all, for all goat producers. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Awesome. So let's start out. What What's happening in July of 2023? Why, why is this a big deal? And why should every goat owner know that this is coming down the pipeline? So, yeah. So basically, um, I will tell you that what is happening in July of 2023 happened in California in 2000 and. 18, 2017, 2018, um, and that is that all medically important antimicrobials, so antibiotics, um, are going to require a veterinary prescription. Um, so drugs that you, that many producers have been able to buy over the counter, um, such as um, today and tomorrow, mastitis treatments, um, LA-200, penicillin, um, those will all now require a veterinary prescription. Um, what I will say is that for goat owners, that law actually is not changing at all. Um, the law is now being enforced. Um, so the, there is um, there is what is called extra-label use of antibiotics or antimicrobials. And that is allowed if the veterinarian prescribes them. If a veterinarian does not prescribe an antibiotic and the animal is not on the label, that's actually illegal currently. And so even though goat owners have been able to buy these antibiotics, their use currently is actually technically illegal. <laughs> okay, so Fauna, let me, let me make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. So I'm at a show, one of my favorite does I notice um, is acting off and see some little clumps in her udder. I think, oh man, I need to, I need to treat her and I need to treat her now for mastitis. And I run to my local farm supply store outside of the show area and pick up some tubes of today. That is yeah. illegal. What I've, what I've just done. That is technically illegal. Because okay. only people that have the right to use antibiotics in an extra label fashion are veterinarians. So, wow. so, so what this does is it now you now say to your veterinarian, I want to have a box of today on hand because this is what I treat mastitis in my goats with. 
and you have a discussion with your veterinarian, your veterinarian says, oh, yeah, yep, that's a reasonable choice. I'll write you a prescription for that. You can have it on hand. You don't need to call the veterinarian every single time you have a case of mastitis. You have an understanding of relationship. You have an SOP that says, when I have both with mastitis, I treat it with today, and my veterinarian has prescribed it. But if you're doing that without a veterinarian being involved, then technically that is currently illegal. Gotcha. So let's let's kind of back up here. And what what was kind of the driving force behind obviously California doing it in 2018, and now the USDA coming out and saying we're going to make this mandatory as well. What's kind of the driving force behind this? Because it feels like the small guy is getting punished. It's the FDA. Um, not the USDA, but yeah. So so the driving force behind this is basically trying to enforce antimicrobial stewardship. And so antimicrobial stewardship is really about a conscious, concerted effort amongst People in the human medical field, people in the veterinary medical field, patients, human patients, animal patients, animal owners, um, trying to make this concerted effort to improve the use and efficacy of those drugs by prescribing them in the right situations, having them used in appropriate courses of antibiotics um, so that we can preserve their efficacy against critical infections that affect both human and animal life. So maybe we won't have more issues like MRSA, where people talk about, you know, you have a MRSA infection and we're not really sure what we have, what, you know, can treat this with because this is something that's resistant that used to not be. Right. So, so this, so the big concern, so the big concern is antimicrobial resistance um, and indiscriminate use of antimicrobials or antibiotics um, can contribute to the development of antimicrobial resistance. And we have um, some pretty good examples of pathogens, bacteria, that have developed antimicrobial resistance that, um, you know, and MRSA is a really good example of that. So MRSA is methicillin-resistant Staph So I'm sure most goat owners have heard of Staph It is one of the feared mastitis-causing pathogens, right? It's the one that everybody says it's infectious, it can cause flu bag, it's contagious from animal to animal, um, and it can be a very devastating disease. Well, there's a subset of Staph that has now been identified as methicillin-resistant, meaning that it's resistant to any of the antibiotics that are in the penicillin family. And this is really concerning because classically, penicillins would have been considered a relatively good choice against Staph. Infections, and so if you think about Staph aureus mastitis, um, in the same family of antibiotics as penicillin, today, Spectrumax, um, Albidry, uh, uh, Quartermaster, those all contain penicillin. Like so, the vast majority of the antibiotics that we use are from the penicillin or beta lactam family. Um, and so it would be it would be a huge concern if we had mastitis that um, were mastitis caused by Staph aureus that were resistant to penicillin or penicillin family antibiotics. Okay, that that makes a little more of a scary impact there when you think about it. it it's just beyond it's it's beyond just the inconvenience of not being able to buy what you want from the store when you want it, but you look at it in a bigger perspective then. Right. And so, so when we talk about, so it's really about thinking about the bigger perspective and also, um, you know, thinking about how this really may or may not impact people. Right. And so, um, 
I, I often see people say, well, I don't have a veterinarian or I can't, I cannot easily get access to these drugs unless they're at the feed store. In the same breath, those people are saying how they're using drugs like Banamine. Well, Banamine and Bosi, those drugs are prescription only already. So if you are using those drugs, somebody is writing a prescription. So I'm hoping that you can go to that same person um, and, you know, have a relationship with them to help you decide what are the right antibiotics for you to use in the right situation. Um, and I think that really when it comes to antimicrobial stewardship at the herd level, when we're talking about herds of animals that where owners need to have antimicrobials on hand, that this is not about taking antimicrobials away from people. It's not about stopping them from having access to them. It's about putting in place measures to try to make sure that we are using them correctly and that we have some sort of um, uh, rationale behind the use of antimicrobials. So for my clients, what I, what I started doing with my clients is I have an annual consultation with them and I say to them, okay, what are the antimicrobials you're using now? What are the scenarios in which you are using them? And then we talk about why one antibiotic that they are using might not actually be the ideal antimicrobial to use in that scenario. Maybe we should change it or do something slightly different. Or they're treating a disease that is not bacterial with antibiotics. And so that would be contraindicated. Those animals are getting antibiotics unnecessarily. Um, so, again, engaging with a veterinarian to make these decisions, developing some sort of treatment protocol or treatment plan or SOP, whatever you want to call it, to say, okay, yeah, you can have your annual prescription of um, intramammaries, um, LA-200, penicillin, and these are the scenarios in which we have decided this prescription is for and you can use it. When things start falling outside of that SOP, it doesn't mean you have to have the veterinarian come out and, like, see the animal. It means you need to get on the phone and be like, something isn't adding up. This doesn't, this doesn't fall into any of my, um, doesn't fall into any of my classical, like, things that I know that I should be treating. What should I do? So it, it actually, I see it as an opportunity for, us to actually be better stewards of our animals as well as better stewards of antimicrobials. So I want to take a step back to a comment you said earlier about, and you talked about you had, you were a veterinarian in, in New Zealand for 10 years there. And obviously um, when I think about New Zealand, I think, okay, they're literally on an Island and they, you know, they control what's imported, exported there for the most part there. And they're, you know, a very, they're on an island there, but what have they done specifically in terms of of um, antibiotic stewardship that the U.S. has been missing out or been missing out on so long for? Right. Well, so uh, going a little bit uh, more ten thousand foot view is that the U.S. is the last country, like last, um, I guess, uh, developed country in the world to institute this kind of rule. Um, so almost every other developed country in the world has a requirement for veterinary prescription for medically important antibiotics. Now, New Zealand has been doing this for years and years. It's, there have, it's, there, what, there, it's my entire practice career, and I don't know prior to that, um, it was that anything that was an antibiotic had become from a veterinarian. If you didn't have to buy it necessarily from a veterinarian, um, you had to have a prescription from a veterinarian. Now, in New Zealand, there's not the um, the kind of online pharmacy thing, that kind of thing that we have going here, but if one of my clients came in and I prescribed him, um, let's say I prescribed him new floor for calves with um, pneumonia, and he was like, thank you very much. And then he says, well, you know, the veterinary practice down the road has it for cheaper. Will you write me a prescription for it? I would write, I would have to write him a prescription. 
to go down to the you know veterinary practice down the road and, and buy the antibiotics. So we couldn't, we couldn't, we weren't. They didn't have to buy the antibiotics from us, but their veterinarian that was our first veterinarian had to prescribe any any antibiotics. Now, when you have a herd, and this is, I think, a lot of people's concern. They get this like I see a lot of angst about this that they're going to have to have a veterinarian look at every single sick animal on their farm. And so that's, that is not the case. If you have a relationship with your veterinarian, if you have an, a nice, an established veterinary client-patient relationship, and I know you guys have an episode coming up that's going to talk about this in more detail, but this is really the key to making this whole um, change work, is establishing veterinary client-patient relationships. and. In doing so, what in New Zealand we did is we had an annual consultation where we would sit down once a year. And from the farmer, I asked them to give me some information about their farm. I asked them for how many cases of mastitis did you treat in the last year? How many cases of foot rot did you treat in the last year? How many cases of pneumonia did you treat in the last year? What what was what were you treating them with? And I mean, to some extent, I knew some of this information because I had given them a prescription the year before and I knew what my recommendations were. But I just wanted to follow up and make sure that they were following the SOPs or the protocols that we had left for them on the farm. Um, so once a year, I would go through all this and then we would write out what their annual prescription for the next year was. It also allowed us to monitor the farms. If we knew if a farm went through their entire annual prescription for mastitis treatment in six months, that maybe we should call them up and be like, you know, Carmel Joe, I, I think you might have a mastitis problem. Do you want to talk about it? Um, so it, it, was, it, it was really about developing this relationship where the veterinarian was an integral part of the farm and, and provided a lot of um, important feedback in the process of giving this annual prescription. Um, and it really kind of solidified and, um, and enhanced the veterinary client-patient relationship. This sounds very much like um, a relationship that you would hope you as a human would have with your doctor, you know, um, that, you know, my kid's got an earache I can't just go to Walmart and pick up um, some penicillin to give my kid for an earache. That's, you know, you would never think that that was the right thing to do. You would want to consult with a doctor and you would want to talk to him. And if you have a prescription and you run through that in half the time that you're supposed to, you're going to be having a conversation with your doctor again about, do you understand how to use this medicine? Is your situation more acute than what what we originally thought it was and so forth i this seems like a lot of common sense to me fauna uh, well i think it is and it is a big change and there are some you know challenges that are going to be faced in this whole process but i think that we should all go into it with a really open mind about how it might actually be better for everybody involved you know, the challenges that we are going to face is that there are there is a veterinary shortage, so we can't ignore that, particularly in rural areas. Um, but that said, um, I hear a lot of comments about how I don't have access to a veterinarian that treats goats, or I don't have access to a veterinarian that knows anything about goats, or, like, you know, you've heard it all, seen it all on social media. Um, <laughs> but... But one of the things, I see these comments, I grew up in an extremely rural area. We had one veterinarian, and they covered a four-hour, like, um, diameter um, practice area. So you might ring them, and they might be four hours from your farm. Um, windy, small roads, um, you know, so, so I know what it's like to not have veterinarian 20 minutes down the road. Like, which is why establishing the relationship and developing these SOPs, all this type of stuff is really important. What I do find um, is that I often hear about veterinarians not wanting to treat goats. And then if you dig a little bit more into it, it's because the first contact that they have 
with the client is at two o'clock in the morning for a horrible dystocia that everybody and the neighbor have tried to get out and now they want you to fix it for no money. So again, you need to like make an effort to like introduce yourself to local veterinarians, figure out who does treat goats, talk to them before you actually need them. Um, which I think, you know, again, kind of goes into this, the second topic, but they, they're really entwined in that your herd veterinarian should be a partner in your farm. They should be somebody, a trusted person that you work with, that knows your animals, that knows your farm. And veterinarians like to do that kind of stuff. What they don't like to do is to be used for services that, um, you know, and that are often highly unrewarding and usually have a poor poor outcome for the animal, the client, and the veterinarian um, as the first point of contact, you know, between between the farm and the veterinarian. So you talk about SOPs, and um, I, I love a good standing operating procedure as much as the next guy, um, but as a, as a dairy goat producer, I find it, hard because I either don't have time or I don't necessarily know even know what to even document on that. Can you give us an example from your farm of like what an SOP would look like for you, for the listeners there? Yeah. So, so I actually, um, when the California thing changed, um, when the, when California changed to, um, medically important antimicrobials being prescription only, I actually went through this exercise with my mom. Um, and I, I basically was like, you need to have a relationship with a veterinarian and you need to go over all of, all of the stuff that you have classically gotten over the counter. We need to figure out how you're using it, if you're using it appropriately. So we did that. So I went through and I, let's take oxycytrocycline, for example. She uses, she likes the brand Biomycin. Fine. Um, so we, I said, when do you use Biomycin? And she said, well, I use it to treat respiratory disease in my kids and in my gut. And I said, okay, that, that is, that's a, an appropriate first-line medication for that purpose. So we wrote up a little thing that said oxytetracycline and, you know, the how much it's 200 milligrams per mil. You're going to give it at X number of mils per pound. And then these are the indications. It doesn't have to be complex. These are the indications for which you use it. Uh, kids less than six months of age with any of the following. Increased respiratory rate, coughing, fever, snotty nose, you know, increased respiratory effort, uh, tracheal, you know, sounds of mucus in the trachea, uh, you know, off, fever and off feet. You have a list of reasons why you would treat a kid for respiratory disease. Period. End of story. You treat it for three days. At the end of three days, if it does not respond to treatment, you eat, you call the veterinarian because something's not right. That you you've done the course of treatment that's recommended. They should have responded, and they're not responding. Most animals, if you treat it, if it really was respiratory disease and the pathogen was sensitive to that drug they should have cleared up after the course of treatment and i should say with oxytet it's not actually three days of treatment it's six because you give it every other day but um and then same thing for the bucks like these are the clinical signs you look for if they have one of these then this is the course of treatment that you're going to give it was very simple um intramammary antibiotics it was um a significant difference in cmt from side to side hot painful utter decrease in milk production on one side, you know, like a list of things. And then things like in the case of mastitis, um, one of the things that I always try and get my clients to do is before they put that first intramammary in, they take a sterile milk sample and then they just chuck it in the freezer. It doesn't mean they have to submit it for culture in that moment because often we need to treat mastitis very quickly and we can't wait, right, for we can't wait for culture and sensitivity results. But you start them on, on treatment. If they are not responding to treatment, then you have an unantibiotic-treated milk sample that you can then submit because they're not responding to your normal therapy. And then we can 
change the course of treatment based on a culture and a, a rationale that is correct for treating that particular animal's mastitis. Can I ask a tangent question on that? Sure. Can you walk through briefly, quickly, the steps of taking a sterile milk sample? Sure. It's a great question. So, yeah, so this is something that if you are going to have dairy animals, actually, if you're going to have any animal that lactates at any time in their life, you should know how to take a sterile milk sample. So what I do is I do my normal utter prep. So in my case, I pre-dip. I then leave the pre-dip on as long as I can possibly stand it. Um, then I take a, about a, a dark tea betadine solution on a clean paper towel. I wipe the teeth. I then dry the teeth with another clean, dry paper towel. Um, and then I take my uh, alcohol. I take an alcohol swab. So I, I get those little individually packaged alcohol swabs. And I swab. I turn the teeth up towards me. I swab the bottom about half inch of the teeth, and I swab it with a swab. I throw that swab away. I grab a new swab. I clean it until nothing comes off, until it comes off white. Um, and then I take, you can, the easiest thing to do is there are actually sterile, there are sterile milk collection tubes that you can get that have a, a cap that goes on and off quite easily. Um, you can also use a red top uh, blood tube. It's just harder to get the caps in and out without contaminating them. Um, so you take your sterile milk collection tube and you hold it at a 45 degree angle because you don't want anything to fall from the animal into the tube. So by holding it at a 45 degree angle, nothing falling off the animal is going to get down in the tube. And then you take your teeth that you've just cleaned the end of extensively and you squirt milk into that tube. Um, and you, you know, need somewhere between one to three mils of milk would be adequate. You cap it, and then you freeze it. Very good. Thank you. And then, and then you post it, and then you milk your goat out, and then you post it. Gotcha. That makes, that makes sense to me there. Um, I do have a question specifically about the changes as well. So oxytetracycline and like penicillin coming off the shelves there. Um, any Most of our um, – treatments for mastitis coming off the shelves there what about like wormers or topical sprays or anything in that nature are those coming off the shelves no so currently anti-hominthic so dewormers for roundworms um they they are not they they will still be ot otc um the other um the the one drug that people might not think of um that is an antiparasitic, but it's also an antimicrobial. Is sulfa sulfa uh, di sorry sulfa dimethoxine. Yep. Um, which a lot of people use for coccidia. Um, and that has um, I I do believe in some places that is still over the counter. Um, and so that. Um, will now require a veterinary prescription. So if that is something that you're using for treatment of coccidiosis, um, then you will need to get a, a prescription from your veterinarian. But again, it would be something that I would, you know, add to my list of prescription drugs that I have been using, give my rationale, my treatment, you know, protocol, um, how I decide which kids are being treated, and... Um, and, you know, make sure that's okay with yes. my veterinarian. Um, and, you know, you never know. On occasion, I've had clients that have thought they were doing the right thing. They tell me what they're doing and their dose was wrong or their interval or their treatment duration or something like that. And so we actually made a big difference, you know. And, and then they would talk about how they didn't think the drug worked or um, that if they wanted to try something different because they didn't think it was efficacious, but they were actually using it inappropriately. What about anything topical coming off the market there? I, I use a, I know, kind of a weird, a blue coat and a red coat, and I was worried about those. So blue coat, red coat will remain um, 
over the counter. What you will see is um, some of the like teramycin eye ointment will become prescription. Um, and um, interestingly, um, some of the so like neosporin, which is a a a topical that I see a lot of goat people use for like skin um, things. That is OTC. Uh, OTC human drug, and so that will actually remain OTC human drug. Oh, interesting. Technically, only a veterinarian should be able to use that off-label if we follow the letter of the law. Yes, the letter of the law. <laughs> so along, along with that, Fauna, when, when you're using an antibiotic, I know that in people there's a big push to make sure that you complete the whole course of an antibiotic that, you know, if you're, if you, if you have um, a sinus infection and they prescribe you to take this for seven days, even if you feel better after four days, you are supposed to continue taking that. Do we have that same concern with animals? Um, Yeah. Yes. And I will say that a lot of treatment failures are because people stop treating when they see the first day of clinical resolution of signs, and that may not be long enough. Um, and and this is it's, it is it is probably actually one of the hardest things. Even as a veterinarian, I struggle sometimes with deciding how long to leave an animal on antimicrobials. Um, you don't you don't want to give too short a course of treatment, but you also don't want to use antibiotics when they're no longer necessary, right? So if you're using an antibiotic for longer than needed and you killed the pathogen of interest, all you're doing is exposing all the normal microbiota of the animal, all the bacteria that are important part of the animal ecosystem to antimicrobials, and you're either selecting them for carrying antimicrobial resistance genes, which then they can share with the next nasty pathogen that comes in that animal, or you're killing good bacteria that the animal actually needs for its homeostatic function. So again, balancing duration to the point of clinical efficacy and, but stopping before we're using it unnecessarily is, is not an easy, easy decision to make all the time. Um, I always, my kind of, clinical rule of thumb is that I treat one treatment past the resolution of clinical signs for the most part. And that's a, that's a generality, but, but in most cases that is, is relatively effective. So again, this would be something that you'd want to have a conversation with your vet about when you're coming up with your SOPs for the drugs that you've got in your arsenal, you want to say, okay, and then how long do I need to take this? So So how, how, what is, so what is the dose? What is the duration? What is the route? This is another thing that I, a, a common mistake that I'll see made is that um, Oxytet is a really good example. There are two different doses on the Oxytet bottle. One is for intravenous use and one is for subcutaneous use. Um, they have different duration. They have they have different frequency of administration and different amounts of administration. And I will see on occasion the IV dose being used subcutaneously. The reason that the doses are what they are is because somebody's done a study to determine the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of those drugs in an animal to figure out how much needs to be given, how often, and by what route. Um, and so, again, not all not all routes and dosages are created equal. So these are all part, like these are all good things to discuss with your veterinarian, who is going to be your prescribing veterinarian about what your current practices are and making sure that they align with how we're actually supposed to be using um, the drug. I, I will tell you that we, um, there's a recent publication looking at new floor pharmacokinetics in goats that was done here at UC Davis. And um, they actually used a, um, for part of the study, a strange dosing interval. And they did that because that was what was being done by 
the people giving the drugs. And so they wanted to know what, like, there was, I don't know why, but it, and I, I experienced it in my own family. Um, I think mom was asking, she was like, oh, no, I think you give it every 72 hours. And I was like, no, it's every 96 hours. And then I was, like, doubting myself. Um, and part of the reason the study looked at every 72 hours was because that was what was being done clinically. It was unnecessary based on the pharmacokinetics of the drug. So, again, there, there's a reason why there are labeled dosages and routes of administration. And making sure that you're using them appropriately by consulting your veterinarian is a really good starting place. So I, I'm going to go off on a tangent here because I have a question, and I'm going to attempt to pronounce this word, pharmacokinetics. Did I, did I pronounce that correctly? Yes, pharmacokinetics. Yeah. Yes. So is there different pharmacokinetics between animals as well there? So, so yes, to some extent, which is why whenever you do a study, you have to have enough animals to get the normal bell curve. But in in general, it, a, a two adult animals, like two dairy goat adult animals, are going to have very similar pharmacokinetics. Where you start to see big differences in pharmacokinetics are when you compare neonates to adults. So a really good example is that Sectifier, which is um, Naxel, which is the only antibiotic that actually has a label for goats, right? The label is actually, the labeled dose is for adult goats. It was based on studies done in adult goats. I will never give a kid the same dose that I would give an adult. It would be underdosing the kid because baby goats have more water in their body than adult goats. And so how the drug distributes to the body is very different in a baby than it is in an adult. So I change my dosing, and I can do that because I'm a veterinarian, so I'm allowed to use it in an extra label fashion from what is on the label of Maxell when I am treating a neonatal animal. Um, and then there's this whole range in between neonatal and adult where the body is changing. And so you kind of have to make your best judgment as a veterinarian over that period of time. When do I change from the higher neonatal dose to the lower, you know, mature animal dose? Or do I use something in between? Okay. Gotcha there. Uh, I was, I was, that's okay. Yeah, you just blew my mind. So. Very interesting. So <clears throat> along with that, again, kind of looking at this in a bigger perspective, this does also affect humans, as you had mentioned earlier, because the microbes that make animals sick, many of those cross over to humans, correct? So, so there are um, there are both zoonotic pathogens, which are pathogens that can pass from animals to people, and, and we often don't talk about this, but from people to animals. Um, but there are also environmental pathogens that can affect, um, you know, that affect animals and humans alike. Um, that not aren't necessarily um, so that aren't necessarily what I would say are zoonotic diseases, but they're diseases that can affect both human and animal. A really good example, um, in a previous life, I did a lot of equine practice. And um, in in horses, we see hospital-acquired infections with Clostridium difficile. And that is a very terrible um, clostridial infection that also affects humans. Um, and, and it is classically... A, a bacteria that is um, can be difficult to treat um, with antimicrobials. We often the, it often requires the quote unquote big guns, um, and so that is a real concern both to humans and animals um, in terms of maintaining a set of antimicrobials that may are, that are effective against um, you know some of these hospital acquired infections. Um, that are not just limited to humans. 
Yeah. Ask any nurse or nurse's aide about C. diff in the hospital because everybody deals with that. It's terrible. It's awful. And the poor people that get it, it's so hard for them to get rid of it. Yes. No, it's, it is, it's a, it's one of the, it's one of the, like, key hospital acquired infections that we, that we are concerned, that are, are a huge medical concern. Gotcha there. One thing I, I do want to ask is what can we do on a local level in order to um, be better stewards of antimicrobial resistance, if that's the right word there, right, right phrase there? Yes. Yeah. So, so I mean, these again, uh, and we've kind of talked about some of these things. One is really having a, having a, a good idea of, um, you know, why – why you are using the drugs that you're using, making sure that you're using them in an appropriate manner, developing SOPs with your veterinarian. And it doesn't, you know, what one of the things that I've done in our in our practice here at the university is we develop SOPs. Um, and then once you kind of have a template as a veterinarian, it's really easy to help adapt that from one farm to the next. No farm, no two farms meet are going to be exactly the same. Um, but I also find it really helpful when my clients come to me and are like, okay, this is what I'm currently doing. It gives me a framework of kind of where they're at. And a lot of times they're doing a lot of good things in that farms that have, are, are using antimicrobials, you know, judiciously and, and responsibly. And so really we just need to formalize what they're doing. Um, I have other farms that have really, really needed some help in terms of, developing better practices with antimicrobials. Um, and and so I think just on a on a farm by farm basis, really um, um, focusing on making sure that you're doing the right thing, that you're using antimicrobials and antibiotics um, you know responsibly. I think the other thing that I would like to see is that when you have a great relationship, if you are a goat person that has a great relationship with your veterinarian, is, you know, building that up in your local community and letting other goat people know that you have a great relationship and that there is somebody that has an interest in goats. And I, I see um, a lot of... Um, antagonism sometimes towards veterinarians in the world and I think that yet there are I know there are people that have really great relationships with their veterinarians so getting those people to speak up and say you know well this is my veterinarian and this is how I interact with them and kind of really setting an example for others to follow and and helping your fellow veterinarian your fellow goat owners to find you know veterinarians to work with um I think it and encouraging that, um, especially if you have a good relationship or maybe your wife is a veterinarian. I, I do have a great relationship <laughs> with my veterinarian. I, most days I do. Depends <laughs> if I make dinner or not. <laughs> Fauna, kind of one last focus I'd like to make as we kind of wrap this up. I've heard a lot of people who have said, okay, July is a coming. I'm going to take this time to really stock up on stock up on drugs, stock up on things that I can get now, but I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to get it. Can you talk a little bit about if that's a safe course to follow and then also about disposing or or looking at at drugs that become outdated and how safe it is or not safe it is to use those kind of things? So so again, I mean, I I would never recommend using a drug that's past the expiry date. And, and part of that is each, every drug has a different stability in its shelf life and expiry dates are based on that. Um, so while I, you know, there, there are situations in which we can make recommendations about how to extend shelf life. Um, that, that in general is something again that you would want to be doing with a professional that understands the stability and the you know consequences of 
of using drugs outside of their labeled shelf life. Um, so, so one of the, the concerns would be that if you're using antibiotics that are past their expiry and the antibiotics, some of the antibiotics has degraded, you are potentially underdosing, which is um, really a recipe for inducing antimicrobial resistance because you're giving them just enough of a taste to not quite kill them, but to expose them and select for the ones that may have antimicrobial resistance genes. Um, so so that, those are some of the potential consequences. When it comes to disposing of antimicrobials, again, this is something that you want to think really carefully about. These are not things that we want in the environment. The environment is full of microbiota, of bacteria, both, you know, a, a, the vast majority of which are normal, healthy, commensal organisms that create part of our ecosystem. Um, and so you don't want to be just disposing of antimicrobials indiscriminately. So the, the best thing to do is to take them to your veterinarian where they can then have them incinerated um, instead of putting them in a landfill where they're exposing bacteria in the landfill to antimicrobials or, and then, you know, there are wildlife that are there that are then being exposed to, you know, bacteria with resistance. Yeah, no, that's not good. So perhaps your veterinarian could help you dispose of things that you shouldn't just be flushing down your toilet or as you said, putting it in the landfill, that's a bad deal. Right. I would, so I, you know, expired drugs, the, and this is not just true of, um, this is not just true of veterinary drugs. So you can take drugs back to the, your pharmacy too. Like, so you can just show up at a pharmacist and be like, or a doctor's office and be like, here, can you please take these drugs? And they, that, that, so this is, this is, we, any, hopefully you took your whole course, right? Of antimicrobials. Right. For some reason you just have extra and they were expired. Um, yeah, you can, you can return them that way. And then, yeah, veterinarians, um, like, here, all of uh, like expired drugs, they would go into biohazard and be incinerated. Okay, good to know. Thank you. Well, I guess kind of want to wrap it up and put it in a little bow here. Um, what else do you? Any final thoughts you want to leave us with, Doctor Fauna, or any other? Big words you want to drop on me and I can take back to my wife and impress her. So, <laughs> I, I, guess I just, I really, so I'm both a veterinarian and a goat breeder. And I, I love, like, I love working with goat farms. I, I, that, like, it's part of my job that I really enjoy. And there are a lot of veterinarians out there that, are you know happy to and willing to um you know work on small ruminants there are more and more of them i have i i'm now a teacher so i'm teaching all these veterinary students are coming out of school and small ruminants are super popular at the moment with like the general public we're seeing more and more pet you know pet goats but also amongst the students like goats have kind of over the last, I don't know, it, it's been an interesting, over my lifetime, they're, they're kind of becoming a cultural icon. They are quirky and, you know, so I have so many students that tell me that they want to work on goats and they want to do stuff with goats. So we're putting out veterinarians out into the world that want to do this work. Um, so I, I'm, I guess my, my plea would be that um, to take this as an opportunity to find a veterinarian that you want to develop a relationship with and that can become like a partner in helping you to, you know, do the best by your farm. Um, and, and instead of thinking of it as a negative, um, I don't think, I, I think what people will need to understand is just that it's very highly unlikely if you can develop some sort of relationship with a, with a veterinarian that it, that you will even notice a difference in the day-to-day -day running of your farm 
but you might actually become a little bit better steward of your animals. And isn't that what we all want to be? Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fauna Smith, for coming on the podcast today, talking about a very, very, very important topic for dairy goat producers and just any um, uh, goat enthusiast whatsoever uh, here. Um, So thank you. I'll start with that. And secondly, where can our listeners find more information on the beautiful Nubians of Wingwood Farms? I don't, I try not to, you know, hype our guests up too much, but you do have some beautiful Nubians that I had a very good opportunity to judge earlier this year. So where can we find more information about that if they are Nubian enthusiasts? Uh, yeah, so we do, um, Wingwood Farm has a Facebook site, which is the most current and up-to-date because, Unlike Laura, my website is not up to date. Um, <laughs> on the back burner a little bit, um, so it's on the to do list. Um, but we do have um, Facebook site is um, just Wingwood Farm. If you type that into Facebook, you'll find it. And then our website, which it doesn't have the twenty twenty two kids on it, but everybody else is there, is uh, Wingwood Farm uh, www.wingwoodfarm.com. Excellent. And if people wanted to learn more about the research that you're doing and so forth, should they just hit the UC Davis website and search around on that? Yeah. I mean, so I, I mean, I have a faculty profile on the website. I, um, it, it's not, I, I've only just recently started, so there isn't a lot of information there yet, but um, keep checking back and hopefully over the next year um, we'll actually um, I'm hoping to get a um, small room in an immunology and infectious disease lab uh, uh, kind of site started up um, so we can keep people apprised of what we're working on. Cool. That's awesome. As always, listeners, thank you for being part of our Goat Gab family. And if you liked what you hear and and uh, want to give us some feedback, we cherish that. So please feel free to um, leave us some feedback on wherever you get your podcast from Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Spotify, wherever that is, let us know what you'd like to hear. Thanks everybody. And have a great week. We'll catch you on the next one.